Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, time value of money. Before we do that, as usual, we have a look at the numbers and see what kind of a day we had on the street. This one is one that it's very, I mean, there's nothing to talk about. The markets were relatively adrift, just barely up, down, up, down, and it finished almost flat on all of the indices <clears throat> and markets. Uh, and the primary reason for that is there's no new information, either spectacularly good or spectacularly bad. It's just a quiet day. Everyone is in a, in, investors are in a wait and see kind of configuration. As a matter of fact, if you look at the S&P 500, the total trading on the 500 large stocks of the S&P 500, a typical day over the last year, has had 3.8 billion shares traded. Today, only 1.9 billion traded. Half of the normal trading volume for the day on the big 500. That's surprisingly thin, and it is evidence that the heavies are off the stage right now, waiting for some kind of news to go in a direction. And they're just not, they just didn't have anything today that would tell them what to do. Uh, speculation aside on what the Fed's going to do in, in the near future, it's just was a quiet day. Now, the crude is actually pushing upward more. It's broken through the 90, and it's on its way up. And I, I wouldn't worry about, like I said, that's not going to be a long-term thing, but for the time being, we're feeling the pinch of the Saudis and the Russians cutting their oil supplies to the market just to get the price to go up, but it won't last long before the other producers see these high prices and start producing more oil to get more revenue. And in fact, it won't be long before Russia realizes how great the prices are, and it's going to quietly increase its output as well. So that that will eventually cause the supply to go up, price to go down, and we'll be back where we were. But for a while, it'll be finding its way up. I would expect gas prices to start to reflect this within a few days. Not huge increases in price, but it'll be some. Now going over here, gold had a little bit of excitement today, but it's, it's not really that close to the uh, golden $2,000 an ounce uh, resistance level yet. So not to worry much about that or silver. Now the 10-year bond, it just, it moved only three-tenths of a basis point. Very little movement there. Again, that the investors aren't moving on equities. They're not moving on debt right now. <clears throat> Just sitting back and seeing what comes next before they throw money into the game again. So it's kind of a quiet, where it gives everyone a breather. Now Tokyo yesterday had some run up in the morning, but by mid-morning there was no more news, good or bad, and so uh, the Nikkei 225 just floated for the rest of the day. Nothing pushing it up or pushing it down. So it just stayed in a straight line on inertia. Just like uh, the uh, laws, uh, laws of physics would tell us, an object in motion stays in a rectilinear motion unless it's acted on by an outside force. And that's what you see here. No outside force pushing it one way or the other, so it just floated. London just had a grouchy day, down three quarters of a percent. That's not a huge down day, but it just grumbled its way down all through the trading day over there on their side of the Atlantic. Uh, so, but really, really though, by the time we got over here, 
it was just kind of dull. You saw there was a little bit of a bull run in the mid-morning, but by the afternoon, the bears had pushed it back down to where it, about where it started on all of those uh, markets that you're seeing there. And that's, that's typical. Now, just looking around here for a minute, just to bring up a, a few uh, items. I want to call up, first of all, a few stocks. Well, no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to code to Kellogg because I want to finish those ratios today, upload a new version of the Excel sheet for you based upon Kellogg. And as you can see, Kellogg is a safe company, somewhat undervalued, paying a lot of its earnings to dividends. As a matter of fact, let me look at this real quick here. Calculator, how hard is it to get a calc? There you go. If they earned that belongs to the shareholders after all the bills had been paid, interest paid, taxes paid, light bills, salaries, wholesale costs, they had $2.40 per share left for the shareholders. Now, if you divide that by how much they gave this, uh, they, uh, they, they had $2.50. They gave $2.40 of that away to the shareholders. So in other words, they gave 96% of what they earned for the shareholders back to those shareholders. And only 4% did they reinvest in the company on behalf of the shareholders. That's not unusual for a very old company it has a very high dividend. That's one of the reasons you see that beta so low, because it's not price that you're buying it for. Wow, Kellogg is going to go up a hell of a lot today. No, it just simply is going to be a company that cranks out a dividend. It lives to, for the next, it lives to the next day, the next year, the next decade, and it doesn't use a lot of the money it earns for the shareholders. It just gives it back to them as a dividend. So it's one of those safer companies, and that's one of the reasons that I'm choosing that one for the financial ratio analysis. Now, just to remind you of how to do this, I've got the financials up, but just to remind you how you do this to get financials, because I might ask this on an exam. Pull up the financials on the 10K of this company and tell me this number, just so I know that you can actually do this now. And um, you go sec.gov, and you go over to the filings, company filing search. Filings are on the, the, uh, on the right side on the menu bar at, near the top. And you go filings, let the drop down t uh, show, and do company, company filing search. And I type in the trading symbol of the company I'm interested in, Kellogg. I've done this over and over again. That's how it'll begin to stick in your minds. And I plus on the right side, 10K, and I go down here, their last 10K was February 21, 2023. I click on the filing button. Don't click on the link itself, filing button. And I'll be taken over and I'll see on the right side and about the middle, a blue button interactive data. And when I go there above the yellow, I'll see view the Excel document. And I click on that and down will come the Excel sheet. Sheets. I mean, it's just an enormous thing. I already got it up because I was using it last time and I put in a ratios worksheet. But that's how you do it. Practice on it. Just call up a company that you're interested in pulling and see what they say. And as you can see, income statement, balance sheet, and there's a statement of cash flow. Now, the ratios, if it's, a, if it's a company that does a good financial report, the ratios will need only the income statement and the balance sheet. Now, follow along with me when I do this, because as I've told you in the past, you can take, oh, by the way, let me show you something here. If you go into Canvas, your Canvas for the course, you will see this bar, the Home Syllabus Modules. You go into Files. 
Now down here, you'll find one that says <laughs> financial analysis formulas. Okay. Now what you want to do is just click on the three dots on the right, download it. And it will go into your downloads folder in uh, Explorer, whatever you're using. And then you can pull it up, downloads. And there it is. You can print this out for quizzes, and you can have this on the midterm. Uh, don't write on it. You get, you get a note card front and back for your midterm. This is so that you know emphatically that I don't care if you can calculate like a boss. I want to know, can you interpret the numbers? Can you see what's going on? What these numbers are telling us? I'll give you an idea here. Um, you, sir, I'm a detective, and I have found your dead body. Now, obviously, the medical people have already been in there. They've got the numbers for me. His body is at 76.2 degrees, near ambient temperature of the house. Okay, you see, I don't actually care about the number. What I care about is what that number's telling you, telling me about how long you've been dead. Okay, that means that at this rate of decline that we have on this chart, I can see he's been dead 10 hours. That's important to me. Not the fact that you are dead. You're dead, okay? No more borrowing money from you. And I guess no more sharing my, my leftover food with you, because that's probably what killed you, but you know. <laughs> I'm not going to bring that up to them. But the point is that I care about what it's telling me, the, nu the numbers, what they say to me. And this is where this is an investigative thing. And I write down what I say here, the, how you think about the logic and why the numbers are what they are. And then how they got to where they are, if we can look at a couple of years of ratios. But that's the point of this whole exercise. Now, I'm sure the homework's going to have you calculating ratios out the butt. In, a, in my midterm, my quizzes, and my exam, final, I am telling, I'm testing you on what you've learned in my classroom. Otherwise, you could just take a class that had a book, and you would, could do it from the comfort of your home instead of coming here. Okay, now, let me go back here. Oh, I, did, I killed a little too many. Matter of fact, I'm going to just do them over again. Let me just start from the beginning. And we're just going to crank them, okay? Current ratio. If I look over here on, uh, on this here sheet, the current ratio, the liquidity, I did them different from how the sheet is, is current assets over current liabilities. Okay, so I just say equals, and I go over here, those are things on the balance sheet, so I find my total current assets right here at B23, and I divide that by my current liabilities. Where the hell are my current liabilities? Oh, no, I, I did the wrong one there. My bad. Let's try this again. Equals current assets. Where are they? There they are. Total current assets. That's, I'm sorry, that's B7. Divided by my current liabilities. That would be total current liabilities would be B22. No, B23. There we go. That tells us, what does that tell us? That tells us that it basically they could cover with their current assets, if they liquidated all of them, at book value, I could they could cover about 66% of their current liabilities. This is actually a fairly low number, but I can't say it's low for sure because I'd have to look at the industry. Is this normal for a company like this? Most companies you'll see closer to one or above one. This is a lower liquidity level than you might expect. But at the same time, Kellogg is an old, massive company. They don't need the liquidity. They have so many fixed assets. 
that their current assets are going to be very pretty small, comparatively speaking. And especially if they put off paying their bills to control their cash conversion cycle. Yeah, that's, that might make sense for a company as big as uh, Kellogg. Now the acid test, the quick ratio, I say, well, yeah, current assets are a thing, but, so I'll take the current assets, uh, in parentheses, current assets, total current assets, but I'm going to take out the inventory because that's really not that liquid. I mean, if I had to get rid of it in a real hurry, I could get I'd get practically nothing for it. So I'll current assets minus the inventory, close the parenthesis, and divide that by the current liabilities. That gives me a better picture of the immediate liquidity of the company. Oh, they're down to they can pay for every dollar of current liabilities, they can pay 38 cents of them with, with liquid, with li uh, for lack of a better term, really liquidy liquid assets. Liquidy? Uh, well, you, you know what I mean. Okay, and the burn ratio. If it really came down to it and they had to pay all of their current liabilities right now, the only one that would really be liquid, totally liquid, would be their cash. So I take cash divided by their current liabilities, total current liabilities, and that, they could pay only about five, five cents on every dollar of their current liability. If their li current liabilities all came due today, they could really pay only five cents on every dollar of them. That's what that's saying, 0 0.049, 0 0.047 and 09. So this is not a liquid company. You may recall I mentioned in the last lecture, and I say this in my short-term financial management course too, that liquidity is not the same as solvency. They're actually two very different terms. They are only somewhat related. No one would argue that Kellogg is an insolvent company. It's going to be here today, tomorrow, and probably uh, after we're all long gone. Your grandkids will be eating Kellogg's. Uh, but, so, so, but it is not a liquid company by any means. If you look at these numbers, they're pretty low, comparatively speaking. Now again, you really, for these numbers, you'd have to look at the industry average and the scale of operations. But anyway, okay, now gross margin. After you've paid your wholesale costs, how much is left? So I'm going to take equals for the gross margin, equals, go to the consolidated income statement, the gross income divided by the sales. And what this tells us is how much of every dollar that came in as revenue was still there after we paid the wholesale cost of the stuff. And it's only 30 cents. So they, that's all that survived the wholesale. You sell a product for a dollar. You paid, in this case, almost 70 cents for that product and you sold it for a dollar. That's more or less what it's saying. Now the operating margin, okay, how much is left of every dollar that came into the cash register after we've paid all of our operating expenses? So we're gonna take operating income, whoops, operating income, where the hell is it? Operating profit, divided by, whoops, divided by the sales. Whoops, sales, right there. Only less than 10, less than 11 cents of every dollar that they took up, took in, survived paying wholesale 
and paying your wages, your light bills, your meals and entertainment, your shipping, and all of that. Only 10.7 cents is still left after that. Okay, now the net margin. That's after you pay all of your bills, not just your wholesale, not just your operating expenses, but your interest expense on your long-term debt and your taxes. So I would take net income divided by net income. Where the heck is it? Oh, net income, 962, divided by your net sales, 15,315. That's all that's left. Fewer than seven pennies out of every dollar that came into the cash, into the cash registers actually made it to the point where it belongs to the shareholders. Remember, the shareholders have the residual claim after the prior claim of all of the company's bills. So at this point, the company has paid its bills, all of them, whatever it is due, and all that. And all that is remaining is 6.25 cents, 28 cents for the shareholders. And, and you're going to see this a, a lot more starkly in just a little bit here. But it sort of gives law, it sort of reveals the idea that all these big mega corporations, they're ripping off their customers and all of that. It's jacking their prices up. Look at the numbers. We can look at the numbers for ourselves. So could those crying babies. Look at it. This is not some rip-off company. They don't survive doing that. They make enough. Their shareholders are happy with them. And we get decent products on the shelves. This is all that's left of profit. And that's not even free cash flow. So now let's go down to the return on assets. This is like saying that the whole company is a portfolio. How much did it return to uh, on that ginormous portfolio of fixed assets and intellectual property and um, all that kind of stuff? So we are going to take equals net income, which was uh, the 962 divided by, go over here to the balance sheet, the total assets. Total assets, right there. 18,496. So that giant Kellogg portfolio of physical stuff returned 5.2%. Doesn't sound like a big return on a portfolio. But actually, that's not bad when you consider that this is a giant corporation with fixed assets, just enormous amounts of fixed assets. That's how they create all their products, is with that massive base. You see the same thing happen with oil companies and other very large companies, that their return on assets, notice that their beta is very low. It's a safe portfolio. It's a ridiculously safe portfolio. Okay, so now the return on equity. This takes off from the total assets, the liabilities, and says, what was the return to just the shareholder's contribution? So again, we would take the net income, 962, but this time we would divide it only by the total shareholders' equity. Clear down here somewhere. Total equity, 4375. That's decent for the shareholders. I mean, that's not bad at all. Now, again, and make sure that you have this somewhere in your notes because I always find some way to ask it. Return on equity will always be larger than return on assets. ROE will always be larger than ROA. ROE will always be larger than ROA. There's a good reason for that, mathematically. Look at the ratio, look at the ratio sheet here. See that the denominator of ROA is total assets. The denominator of ROE is only part of the total assets. 
Remember, total assets is liabilities plus equity. Well, all we're doing in the second calculation is taking part of the total, uh, total assets, just the equity. That's why the denominator is smaller, so the number will be larger. That's all there is to it. It's not complicated. How much different they are is, is something to keep an eye on. Okay, so now, the dividend ratio. What we have to do for that one, yeah, we will need the statement of cash flows. We're going to need to take just the dividends. Where in the world is, are the dividends? There they are. And that's going to come out to be an, uh, a, a negative number because they make the dividends negative. Divided by the net income. In other words, how much of that net income was given back to the shareholders. And that's going to be a negative number. Let me change that, put an absolute value around that. Just so it comes out to be a positive. 83% of this company's net income, it gave back to the shareholders. It all belongs to the shareholders, but a company can decide how much the shareholders get back as a dividend and how much they get back as a reinvestment in the company. And in this case, as dividends go, it's 83%. And the plowback is one minus that. In other words, how much they put back into the company. 17%. Okay. This is a company that doesn't need a lot of that net income to keep going. It's just a giant ship. Once that thing is on the open ocean, it is cruising. It doesn't need to have monstrous amounts of fuel poured into it. It's just like submarines and some ships. You start them out of the dock and out the bay on the diesel engines and then that charges up the batteries which are weaker and you just switch over to the batteries to cruise. That's how it's always been and this is the way big companies are. In their early days they start out they have to come up with a lot of power the diesel gives them but as time goes on they can rely on the batteries to roll for to keep going at speed. Now, debt to total assets. Here's one I want to point out. You'll see it, the calculation different depending upon where you read the ratio. And I believe the book and I are on the same page, but maybe they do it a little differently. But debt to total assets, what we usually do is we go to the, in, the balance sheet and all we take for the debt is their long-term debt. Because that's the big 800-pound gorilla. As you can see, those, li those long-term liabilities, the long-term debt is the big one. That's the one that we want to pay attention to. Because if you don't pay those long-term bondholders, the ones who lent you the long money, they will be the ones who pinch your ass. So we take only the long-term debt and we divide that by the total assets. So this company, its total value, debt and equity, is about 29% debt. Now, is that good or bad? It depends. We refer to this as the leverage of the company. Here's the thing. Using more debt puts the company at greater risk of default. Because you've got a bigger interest payment to make all the time. And if your sales dip, you can be creamed. We even look at that in the next ratio. Okay, so we should have less debt. Not exactly. Because it is through debt that we leverage equity. 
I will show you sometime this semester how you can become millionaires in a few years, maybe five years. And I'm not even kidding about this because this is how it's done by quite a few people who are millionaires. In general, it works like this. Okay, suppose that you have a house that you're looking at. It costs $100,000. It's going to go up by 10% over the next year. Okay, I got, got $100,000. I'll buy the house, and then I'll flip it in a year. Make 10%. No, you shouldn't do that. What you should do is take 10,000 of your money and borrow 90,000 to buy the house. You see, because then the house goes to 110,000. You pay back the 90,000, the interest on it, and you will come out with, oh, maybe about $7,000, 8,000. For an investment of 10,000, you will come out with 8,000. 8,000 divided by 10,000 is 80%. The trick here is that the debt is a fixed amount you repay. The interest is fixed, the principal is fixed, but the house has no upside fix. It just will go up, we hope. So that's why you use the debt, and I got 10,000, I do that for 10 houses, and what happens is that I borrow 90 on each of the houses, and that's how I make a small fortune in over a period of maybe five years. The key is the term OPM. Uh, madam, do you know what OPM means? You ever heard of it? You haven't? Hmm, I thought. Okay, I'll tell you a secret, yeah? No, you're not even close. OPM is other people's money. That's how you make a fortune, is you're using other people's money that they are charging a fixed amount for. You pay my money back, pay this fixed interest rate back, but the upside of the equity, my cut, is has the sky's the limit on it. So that's why you use leverage. That's what we call the gains to leverage. So the downside of using more debt is that if all hell breaks loose, you are, I mean, you're creamed. But if the upside happens and you do your research to make sure you've got at least a good chance, well then, what's, yeah, that's it you are going to make a lot of money on your small investment mixed with a large amount of OPM, other people's money. That's why you see a debt level that is low. Companies, well, we don't borrow money. My, uh, my God, that is a terrible thing to do. Well, they're actually not doing their shareholders a favor because if they used more debt mixed with the fixed equity, the equities return would go up on those circumstances. So debt is evil, but it is the evil that drives higher return on equity, ROE, as you can see. Okay, so, now, by the way, just to emphasize that, if the debt was zero, then the ROA and the ROE would be the same because there would be no debt. So the divided by total assets and divided by total and divided by total equity, you'd be using the same denominator. The only reason the return on equity is higher is because there's debt in the mix. So the equity is lower than the total total assets. Now the times interest earned is where you measure of the money I have right before I pay my um, interest, how many times over can I pay it? So we go over here. Now I'm going to do something very quickly. On the income statement, we're going to use operating profit. That is the earnings 
right before interest and taxes. What we call EBIT. See right below that? That's where you pay your interest. So what we do with this times interest earned ratio is we take the EBIT, earnings before interest, uh, operating income, operate, uh, op, uh, earnings before interest and taxes, operating income, and we divide it by the interest expense. My ass, what did I do wrong there? Equals the income, operating income, right there, divided by the interest expense, right there, 7.5. All this says is the company can pay its interest with what it has to pay the interest 7.5 times over. You can pay it seven and a half times. Now, that number, if it is if it gets low, the death knell is an EBI, is an inter, times interest earned below one. Because if it's below one, you don't have enough money to pay your interest on your debt. Do you remember what happens, sir, if you don't pay your interest to your debt holders? They will shoot your dog, sell your Bible on Craigslist, and make your parents wear furries. Bad, bad stuff. You're in bankruptcy. You're dead. At 1.0, anything below that. As a matter of fact, even a little above that is scary. Because if you have a dip in sales, you're a, let's say you're at 1.3, 1.4. A dip in sales is going to put you into bankruptcy right there. That's it then you're running to the bankruptcy court to get protection under chapter 11 so they don't liquidate your ass assets, which they will. That's, as a matter of fact, I, I think I already told you the story. We were watching, last year was it? Steak and Shake. They, we were pretty sure they were dead because their EBIT could not support a payment that was coming up. It, it, it just wasn't going to happen. And oddly enough, somehow at the last minute, they got the money in and they covered it. But I mean, that's just short term. I mean, good grief. I, you can't, if you got a low, uh, EB, uh, times interest earned that's low, it's going to take you a while to climb out of that. Because you're going to have to increase your revenues to increase your uh, operating income. You're going to have to get your debts down. That's a long-term process. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. So even if you survive a call, uh, an interest payment, barely, that doesn't mean everything's okay. It's just a you've gotten the breathing room so that you can call the funeral home and arrange for your funeral. In a lot of cases. Now, 7.5. Is that good or bad? I mean, you know, you have to look at industry averages. What's this industry's times interest earned? In general, that doesn't look too bad. Uh, just overall, you want it to be, you don't want it to be too high, though, because there you're going back to you're not using enough debt in your capital structure. See, more debt would make mean more interest. So the uh, so, but at the same time, you know, if it's way up there, and you'll see some big companies way up there, their times interest earned is very high. You look at their debt to total assets, and that's very low. They are not using gains to leverage. So yeah, you're a hero if you get your times interest earned up to twenty, except that. You're, you're being way too safe. You, you take a, they, they should maybe take a few more chances. And there are companies that have very high, and they, they're successful, but the question is, how much 
more successful could they be if they would just take on some more debt in the, uh, compared to their equity so that their equity would realize the gains to that extra leverage. Okay, now, going down here, average collection period. I'm not going to do it because, as you can see, most companies don't report their credit sales. Uh, at, you have to dig around, go into the notes to the financial statements, notice, see that net sales, I mean, they're not showing how much is on credit. So I tend to avoid that one unless they've got that number where I can reach for it. And I would certainly not ask you to find one for me in a class like this. But I can go down here to the next one. Um, inventory turnover ratio. This is going to tell us how many times they cleared their inventory and replaced it in a given year. So, what that will do is we will take equals their sales, net sales, divided by their inventory. What the heck? <coughs> Kellogg turned its inventory over 8.66 times about every month and a half. They wiped out their inventory and replaced it. Now obviously it's, they didn't just clear it out, well, looks like there's nothing in the inventory, better replace it. it. But that's the ultimate effect of this. This is the inventory turnover ratio. Now here's the thing. Oops, I did that on the wrong line, didn't I? <laughs> uh, Yeah, there we go. Okay, inventory turnover. Now, here's the thing about this. For a long time, a long time, inventory turnover ratio has been kind of a thing. Get it higher, get it higher. The less inventory we hold, the smaller our warehouses is, and all the operating costs of, of inventory, all the costs of hold, holding costs of inventory, and all that. So we want to get our inventory turnover ratio up and up and up. And ultimately, it kind of boiled down to what we saw, what we observed from the Japanese auto manufacturers a long, long, long time ago. They had a system called just in time where there was no inventory. So in other words, sales over inventory was infinity because you were dividing by zero. The, the way they did it was, the auto company was here. They built the cars. You need a car door, you have one delivered from the supplier of the car doors to put on there. A steering wheel, the steering wheel maker delivers one. It was just in time to hit when it was to be installed on the uh, floor line. Okay, that is an awesome idea. No inventory costs and all that. Uh, so we tried to replicate that in industries. Auto industry, okay, we'll have the auto company right here in the middle and then we'll have all the suppliers move all their facilities so that they're in a something of a ring around the auto of the main floor. Perfect idea. We'll do it like the Japanese do. Except that it didn't work. It turned into a frickin' catastrophe. Why? Because in our capitalist system, companies can die. They can they just go away. So when the main auto manufacturing company in the center went belly up, this entire supply ring that had completely turned its operations to that auto manufacturer died at the same time. And so the community, the city, died because all those workers who had become completely dependent for their income on a company that was completely dependent for its sales on that center company, they were ruined. People were, communities were, cities were. 
all because we thought that we could do it, but our way, where we companies can live or die based upon this whole thing, you know, the best market is a free market and all that. Didn't work. Okay, that gives you an idea that the inventory turnover ratio can get too high. But there's another reason, and I may have already brought this up, but I'm going to emphasize this. The lessons learned from the past three, four years, if you are turning your inventory over rapidly, and there is a glitch in the supply chain, you're dog meat. So when the COVID lockdown happened, those companies that kept very little inventory, they sold it and they couldn't get more of it because they were turning over their inventory rapidly, keeping very little inventory in their own hat warehouses. And so when they went to reorder, their suppliers didn't have any. And so you had store shelves without necessities like toilet paper and foods uh, and cat food. My poor cats, they had to eat the low quality stuff instead of the fancy feast. The reality of all of this is though that at the bottom line, that was why the, this obsession with these high inventory turnover ratios, managerial decisions that long predated COVID-19 lockdown came to haunt us during that lockdown. Yeah, it's great. You don't need much warehouse space because we sell everything out and just reorder it right away. Well, spank me, Jesus. When that goes away, your suppliers are gone. You are too. That was what happened. So, it's, it's a lesson learned from our... Uh, from our lockdown, and it's a good lesson too. Yes, we don't want to spend excessive amounts on inventory and the inventory space, the holding costs. I'm just going through this right now in my short-term financial management class. Look at those costs of inventory. That's the warehouse space, it's the security, it is the uh, heating and cooling and lighting and the equipment to move the inventory around and all of that shipping costs. Yeah, it's expensive. Uh, but at the same time, there is a downside to making your warehouses little tiny things that you just wipe out and bring in more in a couple of days. Okay, total asset turnover. This is again one of those uh, fantasy football kinds of thing. It really doesn't exist in, rea in the real world, in the world, but it's something that gives us an intellectual insight. Instead of taking inventory, uh, sales over inventory, let's take sales, net sales, divided by the total company as measured by its total assets. How many times a year do we flip the whole daggone company over and recreate it through our sales? Now, obviously, that's not what happens, but it's something to think about. And this company, Krog, uh, Kellogg, turns its whole company over about 0.8283 times a year. In other words, the entire company as a thing is turned over about every year and a couple of months. What does that mean? It's, it doesn't mean a lot but it's something to think about. A, an old, ginormous company like a Kellogg or like an oil company or like one of these old pharmaceutical companies, their asset base is huge. Even with high-powered sales, you're not gonna turn that whole company over in value in uh, a year, maybe even two years. So this, but however, you see some companies, especially service companies, where they don't have a lot of fixed assets, their total asset turnover ratio can be a couple of times a year, a two, maybe a three, because they don't have all that much physical stuff. 
you decided, sir, that you were going to start an escort company. You don't have a whole lot of assets, maybe a mobile phone and maybe a limo, but that's it. You were going to do a, uh, start a bodyguard company. What do you need? A couple of Glocks and a couple of moose and, and that, you know, and a couple of black suits. That's it. See, with those kinds of service companies, they don't have a whole lot of fixed assets. So the total assets aren't that big. So they can have a total asset turnover ratio that's pretty impressive. Now, PE and market, the market ratios. Okay, price earnings. That's the one. And of course, no, I didn't. There it is. That's that PE ratio right there. What's the current price of the stock divided by the earnings per share? That's all it is. Now, if you look at it from the mathematical point of view, uh, there. What you're looking at, that number, remember I said 30 is about, is a good number for it. So that you're a, the price is at about intrinsic value. If you look at the number itself, if you look at the number itself, that P-E ratio is how, is the multiple that the price is of the earnings. So if I said a 30, a P-E ratio of 30, that would mean that the price is about 30 times the earnings per share. If it is, let's say, oh, let me do one here. Let's look at Tesla, TSLA, which has a P-E ratio of about 76. That says that the price of Tesla is 76 times the earnings per share. That's a pretty, and then look at this one. NVIDIA, NVDA. That's up there in stupid territory. That price earnings ratio, if you look at the formula itself, that says that the price of NVIDIA per share is 106 and a half times the earnings per share. That's a large, in other words, you're paying for $106 for every $1 the company earned last year. That's a lot of money to pay for a dollar. Me, I wouldn't do it. 30 seems a little bit high to me, but in a case like Kellogg, Oh, whoops. <coughs> Excuse me. Really? Let's do it this way. Kellogg. You're paying only $24 for every dollar the company earned. In other words, again, saying it another way, and I try to do this several different ways to see if it catches with uh, you. Uh, the price is only 24 times the earnings per share. And I, what was the one I saw a while back? Uh, what was the other? Oh, here's one. Pfizer. Its P.E. ratio is 8.95. So you're paying for every dollar of earnings uh, per share. You're paying only $8.95. Do you see why as that P.E. ratio goes down, it, at least at first, at first blush, it's a better buy. It's, a, it's more of a value and undervalued. So that's why we look for those low P.E. ratio because the multiple of the price is small compared to the earnings per, uh, per share. That's what P.E. ratio tells you. That's all. Now, the last one is the market to book. This one's always a pain in the ass. I'm just going to type this in here. What was that, 24 or something? I'm, well, let me not even bother. The market to book. This is what I showed you before. You take the total market value of the equity, which in this case, 
you go over here to a service like Yahoo. I want to go back to Kellogg. It's the market cap of Kellogg is twenty point five nine billion. No, is that a point? Yeah, twenty point five nine billion. So, point five nine six. Now, this is where you have to watch out your units, and I screw this up all the time. Twenty five nine six. I'm going to put it in millions so that it whoops, equals 2596. I'm going to put it in millions so that it matches the units of the balance sheet total equity, which is 4379 in millions. Okay, market to book is about 4.71. What this one tells you, let's try it this way. I hate to tell you this, but you're my son. Okay. I have regrets for that night. And every time I look at you, I have more regrets. No, that's how my uncle would have said it. Okay, but let's take it this way. <laughs> You were born, and you grew up, and I spent money on you. Through your first 18 years, it racked up to about, let's say, $200,000, okay? Now then, you went to college, and that cost me another hundred grand, and so my book investment, total equity investment, is $300,000. Now, let's look at it the other. That's the accounting way of looking at it, the receipts. Now let's look at it the other way, how investors see it. They, your value, the present value of your future expected earnings is, let's say, $6 million. That would mean that the market to the book would be six million over three hundred thousand, which would be twenty. That's market to book. How much in real actual money was put in historically? And then you take that, comparing it as a ratio to how much the market says the present value of it is now. So in this case, the market is saying that for every dollar that was put in to this company, buying stock, people paying the cash money for stock, and the net income minus the dividends being reinvested in the company, actual dollar money on receipts and all that, it is worth, as far as what the future will bring in of that dollar, it'll bring in $4.71. That's what that's saying. It's kind of a complicated explanation, but it actually is what that market to book is explaining to us. Now that one is actually pretty low. You'll see market to book sometimes. I, I mean, I was a little surprised when I saw this myself because I kind of look like 8, 12, 40, something like that. That's, that's robust. That doesn't mean that this company sucks. It is an old company. And here's the other thing. You know that $6 million? That's what you should buy in life insurance right now. Term life insurance policy for about $6 million. Because that is what the value we would lose is in the future from you. So it's $6 million. In this classroom, probably somewhere between four and uh, somewhere between four and 15, 16 million is what your actual value is right now as a present value of what you will become uh, over, the over your life expectancy. However, take me. I have one foot in the grave. So do you think I'm worth six million? Hell no. 
I'd be, I'm lucky if I'm worth a uh, Grand Slam breakfast at Denny's. Uh, the bottom line there being that as you age, the market value of you falls because there's not as much future earnings to bring back to, the, to value right now. So at this point, if I were to get life insurance, I would probably just get enough to buy my cremation uh, and you know a nice urn and maybe a little bit of music. If I'm going to be cremated, I've got to have them play Baby Light My Fire. Uh, but that's just me wanting to go out with uh, in flames. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying here is that this market to book is actually one of one of those curious little ratios that yeah it uses accounting numbers in it, but it really does tell us what the market's perception of this company's future is relative to its past. How it got here is the denominator. Where it's going to go is the numerator. And it's, it's, it's a good number to keep in mind when you're looking at numbers. Look at market to book. And you'll see some of these young hot shot companies, their market to book is pretty darn strong. But then you see these older companies, their market to book isn't as awesome simply because their lives, the huge earnings and the high growth and all that, that's over with. <sighs> uh, that's the latest it's been today. So I think I'll kill it right now. So that's all I have for you today. I thank you. By the way, we'll